today <clears throat> because when she takes it back, she'll have the receipt and it'll say December the 23rd and she'll know that you didn't think about it for very long. So get it now so that your receipt says December the 14th, 15th. She knows he thought about me. That's great. Guys, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. And we are looking at the first verse of that chapter because we had seen how Jesus had displayed his power in some extraordinary ways. He calmed the wind and the waves. He exercised demons, 6,000 of them, just told a whole army, a whole legion of demons what to do. And they trembled with fear and immediately did exactly what he said to do. He's powerful. He healed a woman who seemed to be unhealable for 12 years, had a flow of blood. She just touched his garment and she was healed immediately. He raised a little girl from the dead. He showed his triumph over death itself. Now, you remember that we said some weeks ago that of all the ways in which Jesus demonstrates his sovereignty so that we might know who he is. Before he goes to the cross, let's realize who he is. That this really is God incarnate. That Christmas is really true. That God himself took on human flesh. So this is God incarnate before us in the, in the Gospels. But the most magnificent way in which he displays his deity and his lordship is that when he calls men, they follow him. That's, that's more impressive than the wind and the waves obeying him and the demons obeying him and even death itself rising up is when men hear his call and follow him. So we have in these first eight chapters where Jesus' character is being displayed so that we might know who he is. There are three callings, chapter 1, chapter 3, and now again in chapter 6. But this one has a, a that each have their own uh, uh, intention in, in the text, and this one does especially as well, uh, because Jesus has been displaying his power, and now all of a sudden in chapter 6, we're going to find out that he's in a given place where it says he could do no miracle. What? This one who can raise the dead could do no miracle? It's amazing how, how unbelief, how strong it is. And we're going to see how, how insidious and how damaging and how damning unbelief is. And Jesus runs right into it face to face. And it's very interesting where he runs into it. His own hometown. I was saying to someone the other day uh, that I know theologically and biblically and all the rest that I know Jesus better than Peter, James, Andrew, and John did in this era uh, of history. Because Pentecost had not yet come. They didn't have the fullness of the Spirit. And frankly, they didn't even know who Jesus was really, as we can see in our text, week after week. So I have to say we, we know him better than they did, even though they were there with him in the flesh. I know that, biblically and theologically, but I have to say I still wish I, wish I could have seen him. Uh, I, I would love to have known what he was like in the flesh. And in one sense, sense, I'm sure that I would be amazed at how ordinary he appears. But on the other hand, wouldn't it be amazing to see how extraordinary he is uh, in the flesh? So I, I, I long to have that experience. Of course, one day I will, not in his 
humiliated flesh, but in his glorified flesh, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him, says the Bible. But what's really interesting to me is that the people who could have and maybe should have known him the best are the ones who give him the most resistance. It's really strange to me. I'd like for you to take a look at this text. We're going to see why that is. And we're going to see what the implications of it are for us today. Let's take a look at it. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, let's just stop right. Now, there's a statement for you. (laughs) And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two. And gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Wow. All right. Let's notice, first of all, in these first five and a half verses that those with the greatest spiritual privileges often squander them. Jesus goes back to his hometown. He goes on the Sabbath day to the synagogue. This is their hometown preacher. And everybody knows uh, what it's like to have your hometown preacher come back, don't you? Those of us who are preachers know what it's like to go back to hometown. (laughs) Everybody goes, you kidding me? That's that snotty-nosed kid? He's preaching? Can't believe it. When I go back to First Baptist Athens, Tennessee, which is my hometown church, which I've done on several occasions, they're just kind of looking at me like, I don't believe this, you know? The guy who flew the airplanes out of the balcony, the paper airplanes, he's preaching. Well, that's really something. Uh, but it's even more when you go back and you're claiming to be the very center of a new kingdom. Something that's brand new, something that is ultimate, something that it symbolizes and incorporates all the eschatological promises of the Old Testament that they're incorporated in you personally. That's a little different when you go back to the hometown. And we see that Jesus, first of all, amazes them in these first two verses. He does amaze them. And he amazes them on two counts. First of all, his great wisdom. They say, uh, what 
what's this wisdom? Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him? Even though we're going to see they're not very inclined to accept him or to join his band or to become members in his church, they are amazed at him. He is a wise person. <clears throat> and you can look in James and see the difference between heavenly wisdom and, and worldly wisdom. This wisdom is, first of all, pure and considerate and peaceable. And if you look in your Bible in Proverbs, and if you make your way through Proverbs, maybe you can take a chapter a day, and in one month, 31 days, you can get all the way through Proverbs, and you read all this wisdom, this tremendous advice. And what's the essence of wisdom? It is Christ. Christ, who in himself uh, is the deity in bodily form, he is the summation of all wisdom and all knowledge, says Paul in Colossians. He is all wisdom. So what is Proverbs? It is a display of the very being and the very person of Jesus Christ. So Proverbs points us to Christ. And one day all the nations will stream to Jerusalem for one reason. They'll all want to hear his wisdom. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Solomon had wisdom. And Solomon, with all of his wisdom, attracted even the queen of Sheba who came to hear him. People were coming from all over the world to hear his wisdom. And who is Christ? He's one more wise than Solomon. So Solomon was just a little foretaste of what the Christ, the Messiah, would be like. And when that wisdom is incorporated in one place, all the nations will stream to it. So part of the reason for the the great conclusion of all history, when all the nations are streaming to the new Jerusalem that comes from above, is because the great wise one is there. Everyone wants to hear his wisdom. And these people are already hearing it. And there's a sense in which when you came to Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, you came partly because you just knew he was right. You found in your flesh you were resisting certain things. There are certain things you did not want to give up that you knew you were going to have to give up. You're going to have to give up your hatred. You're going to have to give up your corruption. You're going to have to give up your cheating. Give up your lying. Give up a lot of things. But down deep inside, you knew there was something drawing you there that was the wisdom of the ages. It was the, that ancient wisdom that only God could give. You saw that in Christ. That's the reason you came to Him. And if you've not come to Him yet... You're allowing the things that are resisting you to keep you from coming what your heart is drawing you to, which is Christ's wisdom. They couldn't, they couldn't resist that. Where did he get this stuff? He didn't get it in, in Nazareth Elementary School. I know that. Uh, so they knew that something really marvelous was taking place here. And they were saying in a sense, you know, even as he spoke, and he was, it was on the Sabbath day, so he obviously took up the Scriptures and spoke. And uh, there's a... There's an account in Luke chapter 4 of his going to Nazareth, and scholars debate about whether it was the same event. I think most think maybe they were two separate events. But he did the same thing in Luke 4. He goes to the synagogue, takes up the scriptures, Isaiah 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and so on. And then he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what Jesus did with the Old Testament was he read it and explained it in a way that people had never thought about before, which was the true way to explain it. And everybody would step back and say, why didn't I see that in that text before? Has that ever happened to you? You know, someone's preaching to you or teaching you, say, I never noticed that in that text before. Wow, I see that completely differently now. That's what was happening to them. It was the wisdom of God that was turning the lights on, and they were able to see reality in a way they hadn't seen it before. And I want to say to you, this was one of the... The real keys to my initially coming to Christ was his wisdom. And he began to turn the lights on so that I could see everything differently 
from the perspective of Christ. Because Christ is the one who sustains all the universe. He's the one that is, he's the glue that holds the universe together. And if you don't know Christ, you're not really going to understand anything because he holds it all together. He's the reason for it all. It's through him and for him and to him are all things made. So when you get Christ, you get the, you get the key that unlocks the door to, to knowledge. And I have to say that was very, very winsome in, in, in my heart and mind when I became a Christian. And that's what these people are noticing, that there's just like, like firecrackers going off. You know, boom, boom, boom. They're beginning to see things. And uh, we ought to enjoy that about him. They, they were amazed at him because of his deep wisdom. And if you really know him, you will continue to be amazed at him. You ought to be continually amazed at him. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how phlegmatic your personality is. You ought to be amazed at Jesus Christ over and over again. Well, they, they were amazed not only at his wisdom, but at his works. He says, in fact, that they tie together. It says, what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? In other words, this, miracle, these, uh, this wisdom is conjoined with his power. They're amazed at his power. Once again, this little kid that grew up in their own elementary school, you know, right there in Nazareth, dirty little village in the northern part of Galilee, central Galilee. Who's this kid? You know, he's telling us these marvelously uh, wise things, and then he's, he's, he's doing miracles. And so Jesus Christ amazes even the unbeliever. Don't think for a minute he doesn't. Even those who don't embrace him, they've got to be amazed at him because of his tremendous wisdom and because of his tremendous power. But notice, secondly, when you get to verse 3, that Jesus also offends them. Isn't this interesting? That Jesus can both amaze and offend. And don't be surprised when your friends, or don't be surprised even in your own flesh, your own thinking sometimes, you are amazed at him, and you're also offended by him. Because in all of his wisdom and all of his miraculous power, he's tremendously threatening to a sinner. He's tremendously threatening to a man who wants to run his own show. He's tremendously threatening to our pride. You see how the demons in all of their power are uh, in abject submission to him. They hate that, but they're in abject submission to him because they can't help it. Same with a human being. We may want to be the captain of our soul and the captain of our ship and the Lord of our own lives. But when we get in the presence of Christ, we know that we're diminished, that we are at his feet. And so we're offended by him. Now, look at why they are offended. Look in verse 3. First of all, they say, isn't this the carpenter? Here is a commoner making uncommon claims about himself. Isn't this the carpenter? Hey, I know that kid. He's a common laborer. He's the son of a carpenter. What makes him think that he can be this brilliant university-trained graduate degree, uh, degree uh, person uh, and, and he's spouting out all this wisdom. And he thinks he can just come to town and just, and just be a superstar. I know where you came from. So they're offended by him because they're saying he's trying to be something he's not. He's a commoner. And then notice what they say. They say, isn't this Mary's son? They say this illegitimate kid is presenting himself as legitimate. Now, this, this is not... They're not saying, isn't this Mary's son and leaving Joseph out because they're saying... Isn't he, isn't he the one born of a virgin? That's not what they're saying. This is typical vernacular uh, for saying, isn't he a bastard? He's illegitimate. If they said, isn't he Mary and Joseph's son, 
That would have been one thing. But when they say, isn't he Mary's son? This is a typical Jewish way of saying, just giving the mother's name and you're saying the kid's illegitimate. That's what they were saying about Jesus. So think about this. You know, we, we often at Christmas time think about how heroic Mary was in taking the burden that was put upon her to have in her own womb the Messiah and to be told by the angel that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we hear those words that she says, may it be unto me as, as you have said. And we can pass right on by and go to the next verse. Hold on just a minute. May it be unto me as, as you have said. She, she said, take my womb, take my reputation, take my life, everything about me. Because Mary knew that for the rest of her life, she would be seen as a loose woman by many, many people. Anyone who despised Christ was going to despise her as well because she would be fully identified with him. So this, this truly was heroic that she offered herself to the Lord. And at the same time, we have so many of us who either don't want to become Christians or when we do, we don't want anybody to know about it because we're so careful of our own reputation in the business professional community. It doesn't compare very well with what we see in the, the life of Mary, who said, may it be unto me as you have said. And if it means that the world is going to despise us and call us bastards, then so be it. Let's identify with the one who came and loved us, saved us, and gave, put us on a mission. And let's be done with trying to protect our reputation. To hell with your reputation. Literally, that's where everybody wants to send it. To heaven with you. And so let, let's get it straight. We're not going to be able to be impressive to this world without denying the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot love this world and love God at the same time. That's what Jesus said. You cannot love God and mammon. For you will either hate the one and despise the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll hate the other. So go ahead and make your choice. That's what Mary did. That's what Jesus did over and over again. Here they say, isn't he Mary's son? And they have snide ways of talking about Jesus' people even today. So first of all, they're saying he's a commoner. He's pretending to make uncommon claims. They, he's illegitimate. And he's presenting himself as a legitimate person. He's presenting himself as a respectable person who might have something to say to us. That's, that's hypocrisy. And thirdly, the familiar, he is the familiar claiming to be prophetic. He thinks he can come back to his hometown and march in here like a prophet, like he's got a word from God. We know where he came from. Look, there are his brothers. There are his sisters. Who does he think he is? He's from a poor family in a poor village with a common job. And he's illegitimate. And this has been one of our, you know, poor families in this community all of his life. And he thinks he can come in here and be a prophet and, take, and, and go to the synagogue, go to church, and be recognized as a key preacher and tell us he's bringing in the kingdom. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is a joke. It's got to be a joke. Yeah, it does sometimes seem like a joke. God's ways of doing things. He, he makes something out of nothing. So... Jesus offends, and this is the reason that Isaiah even predicted that he was despised and rejected, familiar with suffering, uh, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah predicted it 800 years before, and indeed he was despised and rejected by his own. This is what John meant when he said, he came into his own and his own received him not. John, of course, is speaking about the Jewish people, which would be the church. He came to the church, and the church rejected him. And sometimes even today, he comes to the church, and the church rejects him. He doesn't fit our liturgies. He doesn't fit our rubrics, our ways of doing things, our systems 
of behavior. We don't like what he's saying to us, and we reject him. Oh, we're amazed at him. We think he's really a phenomenal person, but we reject him. We don't do what he says. He offends us, and so we turn from him. And we all say, yeah, but, yeah, but, but since, therefore, however, however moreover, instead of yes, Lord. And so he comes into his own, and his own receives him not. It's amazing that those with the greatest spiritual privileges often squander them. Now, notice the reaction Jesus has to this in verses 4 and 5. They offend him. And he says in verse 4, this famous uh, concept, uh, only in his hometown, among his family, his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. So we must be very careful to realize that the very way in which God works is to raise up ordinary people. And some of you have taught little kids in Sunday school. And then all of a sudden, one of those kids, maybe the rowdiest of them all, ends up being a, your teacher. And you have a hard time listening. Actually, I think it's oftentimes just the other way. It's more pleasant to listen, isn't it? Uh, one of the things I really enjoy is learning from my children. Uh, when I get to hear them give a lesson of some sort, uh, I, I love that. I delight in it. That's the way it's supposed to work. They're very common people, but God uses very common people. That's the way it is in the church. We should expect it. But he says no honor is offered to the prophet in his own uh, town. And then secondly, we're t- this, this very interesting verse, verse 5, he could, he could not do any miracles there. Oh, well, he'd, he'd be, he did heal a couple of people. <laughs> but compared to the rest of his ministry, it was as though nothing happened. And gentlemen, we don't realize that, that God is willing and God is able but God works through the faith of his people. He chooses to do that. And when we choose our own way instead of him, we're not going to be experiencing his power. And when you choose just to entertain yourself, if that's your biggest goal in life, you're not going to be seeing his power. If it's your task in life just to keep yourself healthy and wealthy, if it's just your task to keep yourself happy, you're not going to see God's power. And we could save your life. He does no miracle there. Because there's a rejection of him. There's an offense to his calling upon your life. But if you really want to see the power of God, just answer his call. And we're going to see it in just a moment. Answer his call. Lay aside all these other things. And gentlemen, you will see his power. You will. Because he is alive. The same Jesus Christ who's at the right hand of the Father was the Jesus Christ who is right here in his hometown and who is all throughout Israel and in many, many places worked mighty miracles. He's still willing to work through his own people who will believe him and who will take his calling seriously and who will lay aside the other aspirations, ambitions of life. You'll see his power. If you'll work with the poor, you'll see his power. If you'll deal with the marginalized, you'll see his power. If you'll share the gospel with your heart, you'll see his power. If you'll die to the things that you seek to promote your own earthly comfort and convenience, you'll see his power. But if you don't, you won't. That's a scary thing, that he could come to the church And the church has gotten itself so used to its own habits and its own self-protection that they would miss Jesus Christ. And I see churches all across our country, steeples everywhere. And I have to ask sometimes, where's the power? Well, oftentimes it's because we're acting like Nazareth. We've become so familiar with Jesus, we don't even recognize him anymore. We just take him, as the disciples did earlier, remember, took him as he was into the boat. They had no idea who they took in the boat. 
And sometimes we just take Jesus as he is. Isn't that a nice story? The Christmas story. It's kind of like Santa Claus. You know, it puts the red and the green in the stores. It gets us all kind of feeling good about each other. It's just another story. That's, that's the attitude of Nazareth. And there'll be no power there. And so here he is in his own hometown, just like we're the hometown. The church is the hometown of Jesus. And yet we missed him completely. All we knew how to do is to banter and tease and taunt. And we missed all of the power of God. In fact, you come to the, last, the, the uh, verse 6 and you see that they even amaze him. He amazed them. Well, they amazed him. And here in the only place in Mark where you have it put this way, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, there are places where you go with Jesus and he's amazed at their faith, usually the Gentiles. On a couple of occasions, he was amazed at the faith of a Gentile who believed even more strongly than, than the Jew did. That would be like he's saying he's amazed at the non-Christian who believes even more than the Christian does. And so Jesus is amazed from time to time. And here he's amazed at their lack of faith. It's, I mean, think of this. The Son of God incarnate is amazed and astonished at the lack of faith in the church in his own hometown. Now, what we see, though, is Jesus' tremendous grace. Because we do believe that Jesus made multiple trips to Nazareth. Uh, most do believe that the Luke 4 account and this account are two different stories. And so Jesus runs into this resistance, but he continues to come back. And you know what? I've been resistant to him. Before I became a believer in my mid-twenties, I was resistant to him over and over and over again. I was the hometown who was very familiar with him, who had been taught about him from my youth, but never really recognized him and didn't really believe down deeply. I believed that he was a historical figure, but I didn't believe that he was who he said he was in the Scriptures. And I certainly didn't give my life to him. And what amazes me is that he kept coming back. And I want to say to you this morning, if, if you've been amazed at his wisdom and his power, but you've not given your life to him, and you know it, let me tell you the amazing thing about Jesus is he, he is gracious. He keeps coming back. And even in this story where you have the, the account of his brothers and sisters, and even some of them are mentioned, look at the name James there in verse 3. James, his brother, who did not believe who was his own flesh and blood half-brother, who grew up with him, who was his little brother, and he didn't believe. And in some places in the Scriptures we're taught that Mary and the brothers thought that Jesus had lost his mind. And they tried to take him home because they thought he, he just had slipped a notch. And yet James is the one who later becomes the, the bishop of Jerusalem the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and who wrote the epistle of James. Jesus keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. You want to be careful because there are some places he didn't come back. But oh, by and large, he keeps coming back to you. And he comes back to you today. No matter what you did, or no matter how hard your heart was, he comes back. And we see that even some of these who rejected him in Nazareth ended up being Christian leaders later on. It's an amazing thing. Well, those with the greatest spiritual privileges often squander them. Secondly, if, let's take a look at this second portion, verses 6b through 13, and we see that when Jesus is rejected, we are sent to the next place. When Jesus is rejected, He goes to the next place. When Jesus is rejected, He sends us to the next place. So we are sent in the midst of great resistance. What Mark is showing us here is that we are sent into a world that is hostile. 
That's a, it's, of course, a great privilege when you go in as a Christian man, you go in with the message of the gospel and you're happily received and people believe it's wonderful. But by and large, you're sent into a world that is unbelieving. You're sent into a world that is hostile. What do you do about it? Well, you better get a gun. <laughs> well, you better have a nice vacation home so you can get away from it. No, Jesus sends us right in the middle of it. And when he faces his opposition, he's right back at battle. He never quits, gentlemen. And the one who is called to be a Christian is one who is called never to quit. We just step it up a notch when we face opposition. You know, uh, in, the, in selling, you're always told when you make a really big sale, don't go play golf. Go hit the road. Keep hitting the road. You're, 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 you're hot. You know, get to that next customer. You're on. And keep it going. As long as you're making these big sales, just keep it rolling. Well, Jesus does it just, just the other way. When you get kicked out, go to the next place and do the same thing. You're on a roll. <laughs> keep it going. And that's exactly what he does here. We are a sent people. That's what I want us to see in this text. For example, uh, some of you say the Nicene Creed perhaps every week. Some of us uh, less frequently. But perhaps sometimes during the Advent or Christmas tide seasons, you will say the Nicene Creed. And you remember we say we are one holy Catholic apostolic church. One church of all the ages around the world. Holy, that is, it's set apart unto God. Catholic, that is, it's universal. That's what Catholic means. And apostolic. That means it's built upon the foundation of of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. But it also means this, sent. Apostello means I send. So apostle is one who is sent. And we're told the whole church is a sent church. We don't just sit on our duff. We're not just folks who gather for fellowship. We're on a mission. We're an army on the move. We're a sent church by our very nature. We're We're missional. And if we're not missional, we're not the church of Christ. So we're going to see in this text, we're a sent church, even in the midst of great hostilities and great disappointment. And folks, we've got some real disappointments. You say, well, I may be a sent church, but I ain't going that direction. I'm not going toward Memphis. I'll go back, I'll go back out this way. I'm not going this way down toward Katrina. No, I'm going to go up this way, up toward Chicago. That's, that's a nice big city up there. I'm not going where the trouble is. We're going to see Jesus sends them right into trouble. You know, you read in the newspaper this, this very disturbing news about the corruption in our own city council. And it's not as though, you know, half of us didn't suspect it in the first place. But you have all the corruption in our city council, all the corruption in our uh, state legislature. And then you have violent crimes. I know you probably noticed that we've already hit last year's number of murders. And violent crime uh, is up 34% over the year before. Uh, juvenile crime, up the same. 34%. And most and 25% of juvenile crime happens during school hours. What? Are they doing this at school? No. There, there, there were 16,000 truancy notices last year in the Shelby County. So kids miss school, they get into trouble, and that crime rate among our kids is up by a third over the year before. We're awash with problems and rejection of biblical standards all around us. So what are you going to do? I just quit. I give up. I'm moving to northern Mississippi. For those of you who live there, 
I'm not poking fun at you. Much. Because moving northern Mississippi, as you know, won't keep you out of trouble either. And uh, so what are you going to do? And Jesus says, go right back in there. This is our field. And when you see trouble happening, you see a place that's welcome for Christians to go. We're a sent church. And we are sent to the most difficult places. When you look at the 1040 window, 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north latitude uh, across from Africa all the way to Indonesia, you have 97% of the poorest of the poor in the world in that little window. Whose window is that? Is it the Muslim window? Is it the Hindu window? Well, some would say, you know what it is? It's the Christian window. That's where we're sent to the poorest places in the world. So we ought to be drawn to the most difficult places. And typically, what the church thinks of, and this is the Nazareth mentality, well, let's get our walls as high as we can get them, let's get our security gates locked and double locked, and let's get a gun underneath the bed. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't protect ourselves, but I'm saying that's not our first thought, unless we're thinking like those in Nazareth, who are familiar with Jesus, who are amazed at his wisdom and amazed at his works. But I'll be daggone if I'm going to do what he does. I'm going to protect my rear end. That's the way most of the churches are performing today, gentlemen. And we're failing our calling because we're a sent church. Where we see trouble, where we see poverty, where we see corruption, where we see problems, that's where we go. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. So when you analyze this city and when you read the headlines and your heart is broken... Don't you dare let yourself turn your back on it and say, I've got to get away from this stuff. No, you've got to get into this stuff. And one of the big problems in this city is that people like you and me have not been running for office. One big problem in this city is people like you and me have not even noticed the public schools around us and their problems and offered to help. One problem with us is we haven't noticed the kids that don't have dads. And we've not even asked, can anybody do anything about this? Anything I can do to help? So there has to be a total turn of mentality among the people of Jesus, his brothers. So that they go from being the old James in Nazareth, who just thought that Jesus was a little crazy, to the new James, who eventually was put to death for his own faith, who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, who took up his cross and followed him. That's the calling that you see in this text. Let's look at it. First of all, Make no mistake about it, Jesus is our example. He went around teaching from village to village. So Jesus hits a, you know, comes between a rock and a hard place. Comes between James and, and his other brother and his sisters who don't believe in him. That's got to be very disappointing. It's got to be heartbreaking. It's got to be a very lonely experience. What are you going to do with it? Go to the next village and teach. So your family doesn't believe. I'm really, really sorry. That's tragic. Go to the next person. You start with your family. You pray more often for your family. But you don't say, I'm just going to stay right here with this family until they become Christians. No, you go to the next place. We're on a mission. We're sent. And Jesus said, I'm going to the next village. My hometown didn't receive me. That's not good. I'm going to the next village. Maybe they will. And that's our mission. So we don't get into a pity party and say, until someone believes or until this happens, if and but... We go. We're on the move. 
And if this person doesn't become a Christian, if, if my workmate doesn't become a Christian, then I'll go to my customer. If my customer doesn't, I'll go to you know, my next-door neighbor. If my next-door neighbor doesn't, I'll go downtown and find somebody who will. We just keep moving. And the church so often, the church of Nazareth, the one who's overly familiar with Jesus but doesn't really believe in him, all they want to do is build a nice church of people kind of like them with whom they'd like to play cards or go to church. doesn't matter much. Just, I like to be with these people. It's like a club, you know? And you, you kind of, you know, you, you don't restrict your membership like you would in a club. Of course, the church will accept anybody. It's just that we don't ask people except the people we like. So it's self-restricting. That's the church from Nazareth. But the church that follows Jesus will ask everybody and invite them to come to Him. And if we get stopped at one place, we go to the next place. And I think you, you can see the results of not going to the next place, in a, even in our own city, where we've not really pervasively ministered to the whole city. He goes from village to village, and what does he do? The first thing he does is teach us. Do you see this? You want to know what poor people need more than anything else? Teaching. They really do. I'm not saying you don't feed them first. Because if you're hungry or thirsty, it's kind of hard to listen to teaching. I said, what's the most important thing they need? What's the most important thing in the poor community? Teaching. It really is. Jesus is our example. He goes from village to village. First thing he does is teaches. When he heals people, he gets their attention. He teaches some more. Teach, teach, teach. What do we teach? Jesus Christ. The gospel. All the scriptures. He says, teach them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. That's in the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Teach them everything I've commanded you. The whole Bible. Teach, teach, teach. Because when their hearts are transformed through the awakening of their minds, their whole lives will be transformed. We've seen it over and over again around the world. 1040 window. 97% of the poorest of the poor. 99% of the least evangelized people in the world. No coincidence that those who are in the greatest poverty materially are those who are in the greatest poverty spiritually. And you'll find it in the history of the world. It always happens. What do they need? Christ. They need to be taught. And then when they're taught about Him and the meaning of life and they get hope in their hearts, beginning with the hope for heaven itself, they know where they're going. And then hope, begins, uh, hope in eternal life begins to engender a hope in this life. That things can change by the power of God. And then they begin acting and living out, knowing that if they act and live out, God will work through them and change will happen. They can even have an influence on their environment. Then you begin to see neighborhoods change and cities change and nations change and the world change because people have been taught Christ who's powerful and who's true and who's loving and gracious. But you can't get to the poor if you don't love everything about them. And you find that true with Jesus. He cared for them. He healed them as well, but He taught them. So He's our example. Then notice in verses 7 through 13, he is our leader. First of all, in verse 7, he personally calls us. Look at these words, calling to him. He calls us to him. Our sentness is a result of our witness. We are sent because we know him. We go out because we've come in. We represent him because we know him. We're not talking about something we don't know. Remember, the demoniac was told, go tell them how God has been merciful to you. He's an expert on God's mercy to him. You're an expert on your relationship with Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. 
If you're not an expert on what he's done for you, you have nothing to talk about. So just come to him. If you have nothing to talk about, just come to him. And so he calls them to him that they may know his grace and his kindness and his marvelous wisdom and his awesome power. And then he sends them out. But you've got to have that relationship with him. There's no sense in going out there and serving this person, that person, this person, preaching that Sunday school lesson, teaching that lesson, if you don't know Christ personally. So he calls them to him. Who does he call? The twelve. And we've seen this number before. It's very significant, isn't it? Because of the twelve tribes of Israel. He calls twelve disciples. Why? New Jerusalem, a new Israel. He's taking over the world with a new nation of God. The twelve disciples. And we are the apostolic church. We're the nation that is taking over the world. Jesus is sending us out as insurgents into every dark corner of the world. So you get all of that here. He personally calls us. And He personally calls you. That's the way He operates with His disciples. It is not an impersonal force. It's not just a cause in which we're all engaged. It's a relationship with Him. And when that's cultivated, then your zeal for your missional work will continually be renewed. Notice, secondly, verse 7, He pairs us. He sent them out two by two. And I want to just, we won't spend much time on this, but would you think about this? The more difficult your mission, the more partnership you need. And if you think you're going to have a strategy for reaching your friends and you're going to do it all by yourself, you probably have a second thought coming. Because you're so easily thrown off course. You're so easily uh, frightened. You're so easily, uh, you so easily will forget the very mission that you had in mind to perform. But if you have a partner there who's working with you, you'll find not only the accountability but the encouragement from one another. If you have a strategy to do something in this city or in your workplace, if you want to change your wage scale so that everybody in your workplace uh, has a living wage, you know, you're looking at 10 or $11 an hour uh, plus benefits. If you're trying to do something like that to bring justice uh, to your workplace, don't do that all by yourself. Get a partner. Pray about it. Work together on it. Strategize together. Discuss it together. Plan together. Work together. That's Jesus' method. He sends them out two by two. You'll find that when Billy Graham traveled the world, he never went alone. Because he didn't trust himself. And he knew that the devil and many of his minions would be seeking to bring him down. So he always had someone with him all the time. Just for accountability and prayer support and encouragement. And the more difficult your mission, the more you need partnership. And it would be ridiculous for any of us to dive in to the big problems in our city and to try to do that alone. We've got to have each other. Notice the partnership. He sends them out two by two. He pairs them up. Thirdly, he empowers us. He gave them authority over evil spirits. Now, in the ancient world, if you were sent by a person of authority, you would go with their authority onto your mission. Uh, Paul picks up uh, on this in this famous passage in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So we're Christ's ambassadors and God is making his appeal through us. That's an amazing thing. So when you share the gospel, Christ is speaking through you. He's using his authority to speak through you. When you give your hands or your feet, your time and your energy to serve the poor, it is Christ working through your hands and feet. You have His authority. 
And Jesus Christ had authority to cast out demons. He gave that very authority to his representatives. He gave them spiritual power. And gentlemen, if you're on Christ's mission, don't doubt it. You've got his authority to do it. You may say, sure doesn't feel like it. Well, it sure feels like it to the devils. They're scared to death of Christ in you. They're not scared of you. They're afraid of Christ in you, and they know he's in you, and they're terrified. And that's the reason you find them scrambling when Christian men come two by two into any dark corner of the world. It's terrifying to them because Jesus Christ has empowered you. Notice in verses 8 through 10 something we may not be too thrilled about. He impoverishes us. Look at these instructions. He says, take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, that is no food. Uh, and then he says, no, uh, no bag, that is no suitcase. Or this, that actually would be a beggar's bag. And then he says, no money. So don't take any money. Then he says, wear sandals, but not an extra tunic, no extra clothes. And then he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. That is no reservations. <laughs> so he's seeing them on quite a task. Now, obviously, there's a sense in which this applies especially to the first century and especially to these first disciples. Why? Because they were imitating Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ did. No food, no suitcase, no extra clothes, no money, no reservations. He just took himself as an impoverished man and went to minister the gospel of Christ. And he's saying to his disciples, you've got my authority, but imitate me when you go. Just go just like I do. Now, gentlemen, if, if I'm going to minister in a certain city, I do make a motel reservation. I do take my credit cards with me. And I do take uh, a suit bag. And I don't feel like I'm in violation of this text. But here's what would be in violation of this text. Is if we think for a moment, because we dress fancy, or we take people to nice restaurants, or we drive a fancy car, that somehow we're going to convince people about the kingdom of God. We've got to be dependent upon the power that he gives us, not the power of things. In fact, we must renounce the power of things in order to have the power of Christ in us. There is an attitude. There is a spirit of a man who knows where his power comes from. And you can see when men think their power comes from their possessions, can't you? You can. They, you can tell. They take great pride in their things. They shine them up. They love to talk about them. They spend their time shopping. They gaze at themselves in the mirror. They do all these things because they think that's where their power is coming from. You also know what it's like when a man really believes his power is coming from God. There's a humility and a kindness. There's a self-effacement. And there's a dependence upon God for all things. And there's a gratitude in the heart, especially when he does something redemptive through the life of that man. There's the difference. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, go just like me. And he's saying to us, go just like me. You be a 21st century man. There's no sense appearing like a geek or an idiot. Look like a 21st century man. But put all your confidence in Christ and trust his power and not the power of things or the power of your age. Trust the power of eternity in Christ. So this is just like the Israelites in the wilderness. They had to trust for manna from heaven. They had to trust 
to get water from a rock. And we must trust to get our resources from him. We imitate Christ. Now, fifthly, in verse 11, we see that he warns the world through us. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what's interesting here is, you know that we've mentioned this before, when a Jewish boy would cross over into Gentile territory, before he would come home, he would take his sandals and he would wipe the dust off his feet. And in almost a ritualistic, ceremonial way, he would get the dust of the Gentile world off his feet because he was going back into holy land. He had just come from unholy land. He was going to go into the holy land. That was common knowledge. What's interesting here is Jesus is saying, even among the towns of Israel that are known as the Holy Land, treat them as unholy when they reject Jesus Christ. So he's cutting through all of the normal conventions of his time and saying, the one who really has experienced the holiness of God is the one who sees me and accepts me as I am. And so when they don't receive your message, you have just gone onto onto unbelieving ground. Once again, he's challenging the church to be the real church. He's challenging Israel to be the real Israel. He's challenging God's people to really to be God's people. And he's saying to God's people, if you reject Jesus Christ, you are no longer God's people. You're no longer in the Holy Land. You're no longer among his people. Sixthly, he speaks through us. Here is what the disciples did. You see this in verse 12. They went out and preached, proclaimed that people should repent. They don't just acknowledge that there is sin. They don't just preach that we should admit that we're sinners. They didn't preach that we should be really sorry that we're sinners. They preached that we must turn from our sin. So you preach Christ as Lord You preach Him as the Savior, and then you preach the response to this Savior that you must turn from your old ways and turn to Him. And so often that's missing. People don't like repentance. They don't like talking about sin. But it's part of the message itself. And here it's emphasized that their preaching was a preaching of repentance, just like in in the prophets. Remember the minor prophets? Over and over again, shuv in Hebrew, turn, turn, turn. Because God is going to be coming. And here, God has come in the person of His Son. And what's the message? Turn. And we still have a message. It's an Advent message. It's a second Advent. The Son is going to come again. He's going to come soon. What's the message? Turn and prepare for His coming. Turn now. Turn away from your evil ways. Because the real proof of the pudding is your lifestyle. What direction are you headed? It's not what you say. It's not what you pretend. It's not the image you're putting out. But what's the essence of your life? What's the trajectory of your life? Turn it toward Him. That's the message. And we speak that message on behalf of Jesus Christ. He speaks through us. So He works through us. He warns through us. He speaks through us. And lastly, He uses us. How marvelous that they, these knuckle-headed disciples, just men like us, what they do? They drove out demons? <laughs> That's crazy. What if, what if we had the Amen Bible study? I said, hey, what you guys been doing last week? And everybody said, oh, we just drove out a few demons. I go, what? You know, these guys came back absolutely thrilled they, that God had given them real power to drive out demons. And they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. You been healing anybody lately? 
they gave, Jesus gave them his power. And he gives us the power too. The power to admit people into heaven. Would you think about that? You have the power, it's Christ's power working through you to unlock the door, let someone out of prison and enter into the golden gates of heaven itself. You've got the power to do that. You have the power through preaching the gospel and serving the poor and those who are marginalized to show them another way of life. It's the way of Christ. You have the power to heal people of their diseases. You say, that's never happened to me. Probably has happened to you a lot more than you think. Because when you lead someone to Christ, they're going to be healed. Everything in their body is going to be completely healed. And one day they're going to say, boy, I sure am glad you told me about Jesus. My whole body got healed. They're going to be healed. All their demons are going to be cast out. And when we work in this city together, when we work in our nation together, when we work to reach the peoples of this world together, we are casting out demons and we are healing the sick right and left. In India, just last month, looking at all the poor people, all the sick people, and just realizing if the church will advance in the kingdom of God, if they'll continue to proclaim Christ and serve Him and help those who are without, we're going to see people healed and demons cast out of this nation. And the same will be true in our nation. God uses us. There were others who went without food, who went without extra clothing. They were the, the cynics. They carried their beggar's bag. Jesus said, don't carry your bag like they do. They would go from town to town, and the cynics would talk about the rich people and tell how bad they were and how useless all the upper class was. And the cynics would go, very simple people, go from town to town. And yet, when Jesus sent his people, very simply, from town to town, they weren't cynics. Cynics don't drive out demons. Cynics don't heal sick people. Cynics don't get people into heaven. These disciples had the power of Christ on them. And gentlemen, when you go from this room, if you go in the name of Christ, you are part of the sent church. You're part of the apostolic church. You're going out to change the world, to heal people, to cast out demons out of individual lives and out of a society. What a marvelous privilege. Sometimes we forget where this holy incarnation thing, this whole Christmas thing actually leads. It leads to a joyful assembly of God's men and women who go into the world and see it miraculously changed right in front of their faces. And the world can't help but say, wow, what a wise Christ and what a powerful Christ. They can't help it because they see the lives of men who have been changed and who are God's agent to change the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for sending us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess that the needs of this world have sometimes just bogged us down and discouraged us. And we have toyed with the thought that the world is more powerful than You are and that corruption is greater than righteousness and darkness is more powerful than light. And then, Lord, we turn back to You and we realize, no, the light is taking over the darkness. And righteousness is taking over corruption. And health is taking over sickness because of the power of Jesus Christ. We thank You that You've recruited men through all the ages to enjoy that light and to proclaim it. We pray that we may be not as those who became overly familiar with the human Jesus and rejected Him, but that we may be among those who not only were amazed, but who submitted to You heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, go with us now into our workplaces. Help us to be 
real sent disciples into that place, thinking thoughts after you, praying prayers for the kingdom wherever we go, and loving men and women, boys and girls, that they may see something of Christ in us. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, gents.